0: your Bibles from, from the book of Isaiah chapter 53, our text verse tonight is verse 3. We're looking, the topic tonight is the despisement of Christ. Now by the way, if you were to type the word despisement on your word processor, it would give you a spelling error, you'd have to add it to your dictionary, but we're trying to put those two together, and we know that Christ was indeed despised. Isaiah 53, verse 3 to be our verse tonight.
1: He was despised and rejected of men, and man is hard and framed for free. And we did it were our faces from him. We did have it were our faces for him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Thank you, Brother Dan. Uh,
0: first of all, uh intervesting. <coughs> Well, let me ask kind of a rhetorical question, I suppose. Who's writing here? Who's writing Isaiah? Isaiah. But whose words is it? God. It's God. And I'm always uh, reminded of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember him? He was on his way back home. He'd been to church, but he hadn't met Jesus. How many of those in our local church don't know anything about Jesus personally? But anyway, he's reading from the book of Isaiah. Philip comes along and uh, joins us up in the chariot, and they ask him what he's reading. And the union had the rest question: What was the question? Is he writing about himself? About somebody else? And who's he writing about? Jesus, somebody else. And so the Bible says back in Isaiah 53, verse 3, speaking of Christ, he is despised and rejected of me. Theologians would call this a form of, or part of, a messianic prediction. So we know, well, let me ask you question. We know that the Christ got to earth. For the most part, he was despised. For the most part, he was rejected. And the same is still for today. new day. So did that, did that catch God off guard? No. Kind of interesting here because about 700 to 700 years before it happened to happen, God made it known ahead of time. This is how they're going to treat my son. How would God know that? He knows everything, right? He knows everything. So this prophecy of Isaiah, again, he's writing, it's the word of God. God speaking. The Jews had it in their hands 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So my question is, seven hundred year old prophecy, when it finally came to pass, what part of that prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 3 was not did not happen? It all happened. Daniel shook your head, no? all happened. Everything. Every bit of it happened just like God had prophesied through the prophet Isaiah. Now, by the way, this is to me one of the undeniable proofs of the divine inspiration of scripture. Because the question I have is this, who is the only one who knows the end from the beginning? God. There's only one. There's only one who could have written this, had it written and prophesied long before it took place. Now, it's kind of interesting. In fact, I hope you know this by now. The whole Bible is about Jesus, it all points to the Savior, okay? And God had promised back in Genesis 3 to send a Savior. Verse 15. And it's interesting, we knew, we are told, he's coming. The Jews expected him to come. And if we were living back then, when Christ came, if we were anticipating his coming, how would we expect him to be welcome?
1: I expect him to come on a white horse with an army. Okay. Think he comes that way. But
0: what, how would we walk with problem? how, how, how would We problems? How would we say it again? Openly. Openly. Excited. The Messiah is here. But, you know, Dan, what you're saying is, is true because that's one of the problems they had. He didn't come like they expected him to come. Now, by the way, did Jesus ever ruffle anybody's feathers? Yes. <laughs> that's a mile under, David. I know lots more about that here. As we go through our, our, our lesson tonight, you know, certainly, we're talking about the Lord of glory coming into this world, becoming flesh. And certainly, we would have thought he would have been welcomed warmly and also with reverence. Uh, and, and especially with a great reception when we realize that God is going to appear in human form. And you going to
1: come, live on this earth,
0: to do good. We, have, we know from the Scripture he didn't come to judge. He came to save. His vision was one of grace and mercy. And I'm very glad for that. Amen. He ministered, he ministered to the needy. He healed the sick. Surely, mankind would welcome Someone like that. At least that's what we were
1: think.
0: <laughs> but also, I also want to be careful here and not overlook the fact that the Lord Jesus is the Holy One. He is the Holy One. And hear me well, for those to appreciate the Holy One of God, they must have holiness in their hearts. They have to be prepared to welcome Him. Because unless they have holiness in their hearts, they can never appreciate indescribable purity. Now, make sure we understand this no man ever, except for Christ, naturally has wholeness in their hearts. But please understand we know that most Jews rejected the Savior, but how many know? There were a lot of Jews looking forward to that day. And God had done a work in their hearts. And we think about the assumption that surely, surely man would be excited. Mankind would be thrilled for God to come the flesh but the fact of the matter is because they didn't is simply another indication of the depravity of mankind folks thanks thank God for grace we can't save ourselves we can't help ourselves we are hopeless and we are helpless we are totally depraved Jeremiah hits a nail on the head. Chapter 17, verse 9. Anybody got that? Want to read it? Think about that. What's the Bible say about our heart? It's deceitful. It is desperately wicked. That's my heart. That's your heart. The heart of mankind. And so how Can the Holy One ever appear attractive to those whose lives and hearts are filled with sin? And I don't believe there's any greater example that gives evidence of the condition of the human heart or any more seriously demonstrates his corruption as the attitude man had toward Christ. It's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Psalm fourteen, the first four verses. Anybody want to read that? Thank you, Phyllis. uh, (laughs) Is it difficult to see the point the the psalmist is trying to make here? The fool says there is no God. He says they're corrupt. Their works are abominable. And he says there's nobody that does good. What does that mean? Yeah, no, not one. In fact, the psalmist said God looked down from heaven to see if he could find anybody who understood any who are seeking God. What did he find? didn't find any. In case you think that's a wrong assumption. Verse three says they've all gone astray. They're all filthy. And there is no one that does good. No, not one. You ever hear that before? Anywhere else? When I first got saved, I confess I spent most of my time in the New Testament. I mean, come on, the old testament's old, get the new one, right? And uh, of course, Paul quotes this in Romans three. And uh, my first Bible I had was not a study Bible, just a, you know, just a, now, nothing wrong with that. But you know, I read that. But then finally, when I realized that it's all the Word of God, it's all important, it's all worth reading. The first time I came to Psalm four, I said, "Ah, that's where Paul got that idea from. It wasn't just made up." He's quoting from the Old Testament. Now, let me make sure we understand something, folks. We're living in a time in America we're being encouraged to be seeker-friendly. How many are seeking according to God? No, none are. They are not seeking. There's none. That's Scripture, folks. And we cannot water down the word of God. Jesus said, my words, they are spirit and they are life. We have to be faithful to preaching the word of God. Now, we do it in love. Don't misunderstand. understand. And we know that God loves sinners. I'm glad he did because I'm a sinner. He loved me. But please understand, (laughs) even the Old Testament has a lot to say about the dark, fallen nature of mankind. But it's also interesting when you compare to what it says in the New Testament, it almost fades away in comparison. But it doesn't end in the Old Testament. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Folks, we've got to get that down. You know what the unsaved person needs? They need salvation. There's no way they can understand. They can't be at peace with God. Because their mind, their carnal mind, is hostile against God. And this was certainly no more clear than it was when God became flesh. They were hostile against God. John fifteen, verse twenty
1: two. John fifteen, verse
0: twenty two. What's Jesus saying? Yeah. I've come, I've spoken to them. And because I've spoken to them, they have nowhere to hide their sin. Yeah. And so the appearing of Christ, fully exposed man. And it brings to light, like nothing else does, the desperate wickedness of man's heart. Now, we're not going to take time to read it tonight, but... In Acts chapter 7, Stephen's preaching. And he basically gives an overview of the, of the history of Israel up to the time of Christ. Do you remember the, act, the reaction of the crowd when he finished preaching? They gnashed upon him with their teeth. I mean, they were snarling at him. Why? Because their hearts were wicked. So tonight we're going to kind of focus on three questions. Come on in brother, make yourself right at home. We're going to focus on three questions when we talk about how Christ was despised. Number one, who was, who was this man despised and rejected of men? Question number two, why was he grievously Slided. And number three, in what ways is he scorned? Who was despised? Why was he slighted? And how was he scorned? So let's begin with another question tonight. So who was so unwelcome here? Number one the one who press upon men the absolute sovereignty of God. Now this is this came up either in Sunday school this past week or maybe last Wednesday night. But what do we mean when we speak of the sovereignty of God? What do we mean? Okay, part of his power, okay. But it's even more than that. His ultimate power. What about his authority? Who asks him questions? Who questions what he does? Now, we could, but who gives him advice? No one does. He is absolutely sovereign. And, you know, for the proud human heart, there are a few things that are more distasteful than the truth that God does what he pleases. And who does he ask? No one. He asked no one. In fact, God... Dispenses his favors entirely according to his imperial will. <laughs> and mankind isn't like that. We're not going to take time to read it tonight. But one of the earliest clear examples that I remember offhand is Jacob and Esau. Esau. God said, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. That's because Jacob was such a good guy. Huh? Not at all. There was nothing good about him. And the same is true about Esau. So why would God choose one over the other? Because he's God. He is Sovereign. And here's what's interesting. Fallen man certainly has no claims upon God. We are destitute of any merit. And my friend, there is nothing we can do to win God's esteem. Now, i got to confess, and I've repented of this many times. There's been times in my life I thought, Lord, this is surely going to impress you. Huh? I mean, just the thought I just had, Lord, the prayer I just said, surely you're, you're sitting back in heaven going, wow. Guess what I found out about that one? Nah. You can claim no merit with God. We have to understand that in the unregenerated condition, fallen man is a spiritual pauper. And the only thing we can depend on is God's grace, divine charity. Matthew 20, verse 15. Thank you Dan. We kind of jumped in at the end of a parable Jesus gave. The parable is a story of someone who had hired some laborers. You remember the parable to go out in the field and work. He hired some at the first of the day, and he realized by noon didn't have enough help, so he hired some more. And finally, toward the end of the day, he realized, I need some more men here, some more workers, more laborers, or we're not going to get finished. So he hires some more at the last hour. So it came time to get paychecks, and uh they began to compare paychecks, and what did they find out? They're all paid the same. And everybody was so happy. Huh? <laughs> no. No, they were not. And they began to murmur and complain. And the one who had hired them said, look, didn't I pay you what you asked for? Didn't you agree to work for this? And now all of a sudden you're mad at me because I paid everybody the same. And he says, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with what I own? And what's the the answer to that? Yes. I'm the sovereign one. And what's interesting is this. When he asked that question, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? What was the answer? They couldn't challenge it. They couldn't challenge it. But it didn't stop them from murmuring. They still murmured against him. It's interesting. The Lord Christ, he came to glorify his father. We know that. The Bible teaches that. But also understand, as he glorified the father, he still maintained, hear me well, his crown rights. And he emphasized sovereignty. Now, by the way, that's what the parable is all about in Matthew 20. I'm sovereign. I do what I want with what I want with who I want. In Luke chapter 4, beginning of verse 25, Luke records for us the first message that we know that, Je- record that Jesus preached in Capernaum. Let's read verses 25 through 27. Thank you, Phyllis. So here he is preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And it brings up an issue or a history fact that they would be well aware of. The time when there was a great famine during the days of Elijah. And because of the famine, would you agree there were a lot of people who went hungry in Israel? Would you agree there were probably more than one widow in Israel that was destitute? But Jesus says, God didn't send Elijah to anyone in Israel, but to a widow of Zarephath. Why would God do that? Because what? He's sovereign. And men doesn't like that. He also mentioned the time of Elisha. And certainly there were at least one leper in Israel during Elisha's days. And yet the only one we have recorded experiencing God's mercy for healing was Naaman. The Syrian. So remember, what does God do? Whatever he wants. Who does he do it to? Whoever he wants to. He is sovereign. And man bristle at the sovereignty of God. It was true then and it's true now. Look at verse 28 and 29. Look, what Look at the response. Look what it says. So he told them, hey, during the days of Elijah, he didn't go to a widow in Israel. He went to Zarephath. During the days of Elisha, he didn't heal a, a leper from Israel. He went to Ascidus to, to, to do that. And But anyway, they were so happy to hear that. No. Luke records for us, they were so angry. They were going to try to do what? We we're going to push them off a the cliff. We want to teach them to skydive, right? Man bristles at the fact that our God is sovereign. Now, again, you've heard me say it over and over again, and I probably learned this years ago listening to Woodrow Crow teach on Back to the Bible. I'm not sure where, but I think it was there. But two things we need to remember. The sovereign God always does what he wants, And whatever he wants is always for his glory and for our good. Okay? That's biblical. So number one, who are they so who was so unwelcome? The very one who displayed his sovereignty. Number two is who was unwelcome here? The one who upheld the law of God. Matthew five, verse seventeen. Can I read that please? Go to chapter 7, verse 12 of Matthew, then we'll make a comment. Are you in verse 12, Matthew 7? Matthew 7. And we think about the law. Who was the giver of the law? Now, not Moses. He certainly gave it to man. But who did it come from? It came from God. Yeah, God gave it to Moses. And so it's in the divine authority that's expressed. And what does God expect us to do when it comes to the law? Obey it. Which part of it? All of it, without a doubt. And so Christ, he didn't throw it away. He didn't nullify the law. In fact, he pressed the demands of God's law upon men. (laughs) In fact, he said, well, without excuse. But the problem is, fallen men do not like restraints. And they really want to be a law unto themselves. And their overall response is recorded in Psalm second Psalm verse two. Look what it says. Are you in Psalm two verse two? Psalm two verse two. Uh do I are you still are you still in Psalm? Are you in Psalm Psalms two? What? Oh, how about verse three? Wait a minute, hold it! You finally got it right, Phyllis. (laughs) That's my fault, man. My three look like a two there. I apologize, Phyllis. But what do they want? They want to. They don't want to be bound by the law of God. They want to break those bands. They want to cast away God's hold on their lives. And because Christ came, he didn't do away with the law. He enforced the requirements of the law. And because of that, he was despised and rejected. I hope I got the right verse this time. John 7, verse 19. Was Jesus was he afraid to confront the crowds? No. He says, didn't Moses give you that law? Now, how many know that's a rhetorical question? Isn't it true? They knew Moses gave the law. So he says, That being true, why are you trying to kill me? Look at the response in verse twenty. What? What were they trying to do? They're trying to kill him. In fact, if you know, you know their story, they're not going to be satisfied until they do. And now they're denying it. You've got a devil. So who was unwelcome here? The one who pressed his sovereignty on them. The one who upheld the law and demanded that they do the same. And number three, the one I welcome here, is the one who denounced human tradition in religious circles. Now we know that back in Genesis three, Satan comes along, sin comes in, and man falls. But even though man has, is a fallen creature, essentially man remained religious. Now the image of God that we were created in was not completely destroyed, but it was certainly marred tremendously. And no matter where you go in our world, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your nationality, people all across the world pay homage to a God of their own. Devising. And there are a few things they are more tender toward than their religious superstitions. Try to condemn them. Try to criticize them. I'll guarantee anyone involved in it will not like you. You will be greatly Disliked. And so, one of the reasons that Christ drew the ire and the hatred of the leaders of Israel is because he denounced their traditions. Did he not? He didn't back down, he told them like it was. Mark chapter 7, look at verse 13. So what do you accuse them of? Absolutely. They were putting their traditions over the Word of God. They give their tradition more authority than the Word of God. My question is, what has more authority than the Word of God? Nothing. And Jesus said to them plainly, You have made the Word of God of no effect. By your traditions. Matthew 21, look at verse 15.
1: When the chief priest cried, all the wonderful things that he did, the children kept crying in
0: the temple, saying, To to the son of David, they will restore this truth. Ha! Now, by the way, well, that's, of course, that's the Passion Week there. It's also, uh, during the same period of time when he cleansed his temple. And uh, wow, uh, what did the chief priests think about all this? They They were not happy. And that's putting it mildly. They simply could not believe it. They were very, very displeased. He despised their tradition. So who was so unwelcome here? The one who pressed his sovereignty on them, the one who upheld the law, the one who despised the tradition, and number four, the one who repudiated an empty profession. What is it, what is an empty profession? Oh I I, I don't think we can put any better than that. Now I don't have the verse in our notes tonight, but Jesus said, "You honor me with your lips." What's the problem? Ah, your heart is far from me, <laughs> and nothing made him hardly any matter. Infuriated, infuriated many more when Christ denounced their empty perfection. Since he was omniscient, it's impossible to impose upon him, and they tried. Since he is unchangeably righteous, he cannot accept deception. Since he is absolutely holy, he must insist on sincerity and reality. Amen. Let me ask a quick question here. Has Christ changed in that area? No. In John chapter 8, one of the longest recorded interaction with the Pharisees, the Jews declared that Abraham is our father. He's our father and Jesus said <laughs> now remember they, they claimed that they professed that but what did Jesus say it's empty you know if you were Abraham's children you would do the works of Abraham now you know what the works of Abraham was he believed that's the word. He believed. Wasn't circumcision. Wasn't the law. They weren't they enforced weren't, uh, in, in yet. Abraham believed God. And Jesus said, if Abraham was your father, you would believe me. So he says, say it long, say it loud, say it proud all you want, but all you've got is an empty profession. It is Then they said, well, wait a minute, we have one Father, and it's God. Our Father is God. They're professing it with their mouths. Folks, you have to know the way Jesus would not back down. Because Jesus says, if God was your Father, you would love me. Me. Don't miss this, folks. They're professing something that wasn't true. If God was your father, you would love me. And don't miss this. He doesn't stop there. He could have. He says, Your problem is, you are of your father, the devil. Well, that wants some friends. Huh? You are of your father, the devil, and his will is the one you're doing, not the will of my father. (laughs) So your profession is empty. Whoa. It's hard. To repudiate facts. But they don't give up. Look in verse forty-eight. Now remember, if Abraham were their father, if God was their father. Would they have said that about Jesus? No. Absolutely not. John 10 is another encounter with the Jews. Look at verse 24 and look what they ask him. What do they want to know? Yeah. Are you really the Christ? Quit bidding around the bush. Tell us plainly. It may be hard to assume this, but by looking at that, what are they implying there? Okay. But maybe they're also implying, if you tell us, we might believe you. But we know they wouldn't. <laughs> there you go, Dan. Yeah, maybe. Go to verse twenty five and twenty seven. Twenty five through twenty seven, John ten. Oh, boy. That won him over. Now, don't forget, who's he talking to here? The Jews. (laughs) Yeah, wow. And they said, just tell us. He said, I already have. But not only that, you've seen the works that I do. Now, by the way, the law required two witnesses. Two testimonies. Jesus, you've got me and you've got my works. You've got my words and you've got my works. Everything everything I'm doing testifies who I am. But he says, the reason you don't believe me is because you're not part of my flock. Oh, man. And by the way, how many know if you're not part of the flock of Christ, you're not part of the flock of God either. Because Jesus says, my sheep, they hear my voice, I know who they are, and they follow me. Notice in verse 31 how happy it made them. What was their response? They were, they were not happy. So who was so unwelcome here? The one who presses sovereignty upon them? The one who demanded the uphold the law? The one who did away with the tradition? The one who exposed their empty profession? And number five, the one who exposed and denounced sin how many know that when Christ was here he was a constant thorn in their side here's one thing we cannot forget holiness condemned their unholiness he was holy and they were not He was righteous and they were not. He was everything they were not. It's been true since the fall of Adam and Eve. Man has wanted to go his own way. We've wanted to please ourselves. We want to gratify our lust. We want to be comfortable in our wickedness. And because of that... We resent the one who searches our hearts, the one who exposes our sin, the one who pierces our conscience, and the one who rebukes our evil. And we don't like it. So I suppose tonight my question is, how compromising was Jesus? Levendi, are you shaking your head No. None. Totally, absolutely uncompromising. He would not wink at wrongdoing. But over and over again, he denounced it. Didn't matter who you were. If you were wrong, you were wrong. John 9, look at verse, John 9, verse 39. That's why I came. I came to discover your secret chambers, your secret characters. I came to prove that you are blind in spiritual things. I came to prove, to demonstrate that you love darkness rather than light. His very person, his preaching, his teaching, tested everything and everyone with whom he came into contact with. So why was he despised? Number one, he requires inward purity. He told the Pharisee the problem is you watch the outside, but you forgot what? You forgot the inside. You've taken care of these matters of the law, but you've forgotten other matters. He was also despised, number two, because he demanded repentance. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he preached. And, folks, the church today still needs to demand repentance. That's the only way to be born again. He exposed their sin. He demanded repentance. And number three, he said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to deny yourself. You're going to pick up your cross every day. And you have to follow me. You have to follow me. In Titus chapter 1, look at verse 16. Paul says they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, and under every good work, reprobate. I don't know why Paul doesn't get to the point. Huh? How many in our world today claim they know God? Ask him have you been born here? Yeah, I'm, I've, you know, I repeated a prayer 35 years ago. I haven't been to church since then. I was baptized six times. <laughs> but Paul says, professing they knew God, what did their work show? You don't know God. You don't know God. The authority of Christ was despised by those who disregarded his precepts and his commandments. The despisement of Christ. I'll be preaching Sunday morning in our third Easter series message. I'm so glad that those who received him, he gave the power and the authority and the right to become the sons of God, Amen. Let's stop there for tonight, and let's take a few minutes for Bible study. I mean, for prayer at the end of our Bible study. Uh, Sister Kathy Bear had a biopsy today. Uh, Pam spoke with her last night. Uh, they won't know for a couple of days the results of that. Uh, they they think that part of it was scar tissue, but there were two spots uh, they're concerned about, and they want to make sure uh, what's going on there. Uh, the good thing is she has peace about it. She's trusting the Lord. And we're going to just pray that God's will be done and God will continue to give her uh, that peace. Uh, continue to pray for Sister Terry Meyer. Any update on her, Ruby? Oh, she's still in rehab. Okay. So let's... Okay, so she's at Forest Hills Rehab, not very far from here, on top of the hill over there in Mount Carmel. So uh, if you get a chance, stop by and see her. Probably encourage your heart a little bit, okay? Uh, let her know that you're praying for her, that you want to encourage her. Somebody else, will we pray tonight. Yes, Bill? First of all, Tim, you know, they
1: did a biopsy
0: of the prostate, and one of them came back cancer. You're going to operate on the next Wednesday. On Tim? On Tim, you said? Yes, okay, I know who Tim is, sure. Do pray for Tim. I pray that God will touch him. Somebody else will we pray. Ruby? Who is? Mildred is. Okay. Um, tomorrow, let's pray for her. Also, uh, a friend of ours, Linda Gilpin, and your friend, is having surgery pretty soon. Uh, and pray, we need to pray for her. Somebody else will we pray. And by the way, pray for, for Linda's salvation. Okay? I'm praying that God will speak to her heart that uh, you know, she appreciates a lot of our folks in our church. She's met most of you. and uh, But she needs to be saved. And we want to pray for her salvation. Somebody else will we pray tonight? If not, let's all stand. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for loving God's Word. Charlie Glover, pray for us, please.